Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 201 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Rob Salkowitz. He's the co-founder and principal consultant for the Seattle-based communications firm MediaPlan LLC. He also teaches in the digital media program at the University of Washington, and he's the author of the books Young World Rising and Generation Blend, which explore generational differences in the use of technology. And we'll be speaking with him today about his book Comic-Con and the Business of Pop Culture. And now, here's our interview with Rob Salkowitz. All right, so we're here with Rob Salkowitz. Welcome to the show. Thanks, David. Nice to be here. Okay, so first of all, just tell us a bit about your history as a comic book fan. I was reading comics pretty much as early as I can remember. Uh, I think at a certain point, my folks thought, okay, he's going to keep doing this, so we'll just uh, try and make sure that he reads the good ones. Yeah, so what are the, what are the good ones? Um, I was a big fan in the early days. This was kind of a weird comic for a, for a kid to be reading, but it was called The Spirit by Will Eisner. Um, it was, so it was actually from the 1940s and it was a, uh, kind of a detective comic, but it was really well drawn and well written kind of short stories that was being reprinted in, in magazines. And, um, it turns out that this is really some of the best comic work that's ever been done. And it's a real primer in the visual language of how comics work. So as I was reading this as a little kid, I was sort of internalizing a lot of interesting storytelling ideas and and things like that of course i was a big superhero fan too i read you know batman and avengers and all that good stuff uh, well so you say that the spirit was kind of an odd one for a kid to be reading how did you get into that uh, i i had been reading you know superman and, and stuff like that one day my dad came home and he's uh, with a with a pile of magazines that he had gotten from a you know from a distributor and he said i used to read these as a kid maybe you would like them and i was immediately taken in I didn't realize that they were reprints at the time. I thought they were they were newly done, and it just took me a while to realize it was kind of an older thing. Hmm. And so, how did you get involved with comic book conventions? Uh, I had been out of comics for a long time. I wasn't, you know, when I was a teenager and in college and things like that. I kind of drifted away from it and was into other things. And in the mid '90s, one of the things I was doing was um, writing scenarios for video games. And uh, one of the ones that I had written was nominated for an award at E3, which I had never been to. So the gaming company took me down there. And in the middle of the E3 floor was Stan Lee sitting there signing comics and signing posters. And I thought I had never kind of done any training or anything to get into gaming or video writing or multimedia or any of the stuff that I was doing. And I realized that a lot of that came from comics and that maybe it was a good idea to reconnect with that. Um, so I think the next year, just on a whim, I booked a ticket and flew down to San Diego I, uh, to tell you how long ago this was. <laughs> I actually walked up to the convention center and bought a four-day pass and walked right in. <laughs> I, I got my hotel for about $80 a night. It was uh, different times. Yeah, yes, because I, I gather now that one does not simply walk into Comic-Con. No, it's uh, becoming something between like a lottery and the Hunger Games. <laughs> Um, yeah, so so talk about that. I mean, talk about how big and what a hassle it is now to just to get in the in the door. Well, the first year that I went was '97, and it was about thirty five thousand people, which seemed like the biggest comic convention I had ever been to, and it was a lot of people, and there was a lot of professionals and stuff like that. 
But boy, that was nothing because it was just about to enter this growth spurt driven by the movies and the expansion of the convention center and a whole bunch of other things that were going on, such that the attendance went from 35,000 to about 50 to 75 to 100. Um, and then it tops out at 130,000 people. The San Diego Convention Center is only so big and the fire marshals only let you have so many people in there. So, you know, it's growing at this fantastic rate and everybody wanted to be there. And a lot of people wanted to be there just because it was the place to be. They might not have been especially interested in in comics or fandom or anything like that in the hardcore way that you used to need to be. Um, but nevertheless, lots and lots of people. And these days when the badges go on sale online, um, it's like, I don't know, it's like when you turn the air conditioner on and the lights in the room dim <laughs> a little bit. Um, I can feel the internet dim a little bit when the, you know, all of the millions of people are rushing onto that site trying to grab these badges. Uh, this year, I think that if you weren't in the queue at 90 seconds after the, the badges went on sale, you were not getting one. <laughs> yeah, you talk about it sounds like your wife has really taken the lead in uh, being being really organized and handling all the logistics that get more and more uh, Hunger Games like every year. We uh, after the book came out, I got more onto the pro track, which is. It's also fraught in its own ways with stuff, but it's a little bit of a cleaner shot than, than just trying to be a random attendee. My wife is a staff member. She actually volunteers at the Eisner Award um, uh, ceremony. And so she gets a badge through that. So over the years, we've made a few connections that make life a little bit easier. But if we were just in the pool with everybody else right now, it would be just completely madness inducing. It would, uh, I don't know what we would do. Because uh, even, even the most practiced um, organizational person these days is going to have a hard time. This year for the hotel rooms, it didn't matter how fast you were. It didn't matter how, how well you had figured out what your preferences were. It was a lottery. And you got into the pool, you put in your stuff, and then a few days later, you would get a mysterious email from the you know, hotel accommodations people saying, this is your hotel room. Give us your deposit, please. <laughs> so it's completely opaque and mysterious, and and I have no idea how people deal with that. It's just crazy. Yeah. Okay. So you've been going to Comic Con for years now. You guys are kind of involved with the Eisner Awards and stuff like that. So then, how did you decide to, that you wanted to write a book about the business side of Comic Con? I had been working professionally, so after I finished with the video games and that sort of stuff, um, I got into business consulting around um, sort of understanding the convergence of technology and social and economic trends that were going on. And so I was doing a lot of work around thing, questions like um, generational change in the workplace. And I wrote a book on how different generations use technology. And I've written a book on uh, young entrepreneurs and emerging economies. So I was really interested in these ideas of you know, technology and disruption of existing business models. And so after that second book had come out, it's called Young World Rising. Um, I was at Comic-Con because we go every year and I was talking with a friend of ours about, you know, so, so, you know, what should I do next? What, what interesting trends are in the future? And he says, my God, look around you. This is the future of entertainment right here where we are. Um, maybe this should be your next project. And I thought that's a, that's a good idea. And so I went around the, I think that was the 2011 Comic-Con, the one that I, that I used in the book. And so I went through the Comic-Con that weekend with my futurist goggles on looking at all of the different ways that 
um, comic fandom and, and this weird little niche industry was solving problems that were bedeviling much bigger industries and, and businesses than they were in things around things like fan engagement and how do we how do we turn consumers into fans of our brand how do we monetize content digitally without undercutting our whole existing supply chain um, how do we reach people across different screens um, you know whether it's uh, you know mobile phones or, or films or TV and in all of these areas it was interesting to me that uh, comics and their allies in the entertainment and technology industry were figuring this stuff out um, better, faster, and more effectively than a lot of other people were. And it was kind of worth writing a business book about this to try and take that lesson to a to an audience that may not be as familiar with what's going on at, at a place like San Diego Comic Con. Yeah, no, the book is really, really interesting. And I, I was personally not that familiar with the business aspects of the comic book industry going into this. So I was really surprised, like I think a lot of people would be to learn, given that superhero movies just absolutely dominate the box office these days, that superhero comics are actually really struggling. Uh, could you talk about that uh, contradiction or seeming contradiction there? Yeah, part of it has to do with the way that comics are distributed. So when comics got started in the 30s and 40s, they were a mass medium and they were on newsstands and everybody read them and comic print runs were in the millions. And, you know, if a, if a comic wasn't selling a million copies at the newsstand level, it would probably be on the cancellation list. Um, and then in the at the end of the 70s and the, and the 80s, the industry changed models and moved away from the newsstand to distributing exclusively through comic book stores which initially had a lot of advantages. There were, the books were non-returnable and you could print stuff that you knew the fans would read that maybe wouldn't sell that well to a general audience. You can, you know, sort of get a more of a feedback loop going in terms of uh, all the fans and, and comic readers would know everything they wanted was in one place. They wouldn't have to go from one place to another. So there's a lot of good reasons why it went that way. But what it ended up doing is cutting comics off from the rest of the culture. So that unless you were willing to go to a comic store, um, which honestly, you know, in the 80s and 90s were not especially welcoming places for the uninitiated, uh, it, it became very hard to find comics and buy comics. And the, the industry kind of got into this loop of producing stuff only for the fans that was addressable only for this very limited market and things like that. So, you know, you get to a point in the 2000s when the economy starts going down and, uh, you know, uh, uh, 50, 60,000 issues sold is suddenly looking like a healthy title when before, you know, it was, it was much larger numbers than that. So the distribution of comics as themselves got really limited, but the, subject matter and the stories and the characters and all of that stuff continue to capture people's imaginations. And when the special effects technology in the movies got good enough to reproduce the experience that you had in your own imagination, when you're reading, you know, Jack Kirby's Thor and seeing Asgard and, and seeing all this amazing imagery that he's putting on the page there, you know, eventually we got good enough that with, you know, several million dollars and a room full of computers, we could approximate the sensation that this one guy sitting in his basement studio could do with a with a pencil and a bottle of ink. Mm -hmm. um, so, so those those are the things. So, so it made comics at once more accessible to a lot of people through this different medium, and yet the actual format of comic books is still 
a little bit esoteric and a little bit harder to find. Um, you know, now we've got graphic novels and we've got digital distribution and things like that. So it makes it a little bit easier. But that was what caused them to retreat from the public view. Well, right, because I come out of book publishing, and in book publishing, it's fairly straightforward. If you have the Game of Thrones TV show is really popular, everyone knows if they want more of this to go pick up a Game of Thrones by George R. R. Martin, and it's clear where to start, and you don't need any background to start reading that book. But if you see Captain America and you say, oh, I want to read more Captain America comics, like, where do you start? It's, it's, it's crazy. Well, the publishers, and in particular, Marvel is doing a very good job of this, are making it easier now than it used to be to tie into these existing storylines. And they're much more conscious of the fact that they're getting fans through all of these different on-ramps and entry points and not just, you know, somebody that's going to know and love this stuff from, you know, reading it for dozens of years. Um, so, so the publishers are getting a little bit better at that. The retailers are getting better, partly because their life depends on it, uh, you know, uh, to get these new fans interested in in buying what they're selling so you know it's getting a little bit better but the problem is i mean a lot of these characters and franchises go back to the 1930s and 40s or you know some of them um the 60s even the the some of the newest characters in the pantheon somebody like deadpool um is 25 years old and that's a big pile of comic books and it's a big set of old storylines that all you know may or may not have anything to do with each other or have anything to do with the movie so yeah, it can be a little confusing, for sure. Right, and that's really a, a constant theme throughout this book, is that comic books have this built-in readership who, wants the, who, who knows all the backstory and wants the comics to be adult and sophisticated and to tie into the mythology and to be challenging. But then that, doesn't, that makes it really hard for new people to get into it. And so there's this, real, there's this huge conflict between holding on to the existing audience and building a new audience. Yeah, and this is the tension that underlies all of it, because I think what makes comics and superheroes interesting and intriguing has to do a little bit with this legacy that they've been around so long that contemporary writers and creators are making a conscious effort to bring old storylines into the present and refer back to old stuff. So it's like walking through this you know, sort of historic district of the city, um, which is much more interesting than walking through the stuff that was just built up yesterday. So there's a that 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 heritage and the attachment that the fan base has and the high barriers to entry that it meant to be a fan in the 70s and 80s when all this stuff was very out of the mainstream and not accessible and books weren't being reprinted and you couldn't get you know deluxe editions and download everything with the click of a button the way you can now so so there was a real thrill of discovery and thrill of the chase to go in and and find out stuff that other fans didn't know. Um, and that contributes a lot, even to this day. You know, conventions have changed a lot from what they used to be in terms of the, you know, the intensity of the fan base. But underneath them all, there's kind of that archaeology to it, you know, where there's these sort of different layers and, and things you can discover. So that makes the subject intriguing, but it also is a little bit forbidding that if you just saw the Iron Man movie and thought Robert Downey Jr. was great and you want to read more about this character and you're not necessarily interested in, you know, 40 years of continuity, um, you know, there's these conversations in fandom. Of, are you a true fan if you only like this stuff as it's presented in the media? And that used to be an easy question. It's like, no, of course not. Like the authentic texts are, are in the books. Now, not so much because the media fans outnumber the traditional fans, you know, 10 to 1, 100 to 1. 
Right. And, and also now there's so many superheroes on in movies and on TV. Like even the biggest superhero fan couldn't possibly keep up with all the movies and TV shows, let alone the comics. I mean, do you think there's just a, a surplus, uh, you know, a surplus of superhero material out there that makes it really hard for the comics to get traction? No, I, I mean, I think the comics are still a uh, medium for people that want to consume it in that way. Like if you're a comics fan, you like the artwork, you like going into comic stores, you want to have something to read on your iPad or something like that. I mean, it's a specialized medium, whereas the movies are and the TV shows are a mass medium. Uh, in terms of the diversity of material out there, I think it's almost going the other way in that the mass media stuff is mining a very deep level of what's in the comics right now. Like all the low-hanging fruit has been harvested. So you get a show like like Legends of Tomorrow, the the um, the DC-based show that's on uh, CW, I think. And that show features characters so deep in the backlist that even a lot of comic fans may not be sure who these people are. And to me, it's interesting that they would, you know, that we're at the point where you can have you know, stuff that's really hardcore, you know, comic nerd subject matter broadcast on TV and just regular people looking at this and, and trying to make heads or tails of it <laughs> when it when it barely makes sense, even if you're deeply into it. Right. But I mean, would you say it's working, though? I mean, I wouldn't imagine that characters like Deadpool or Ant-Man were particularly well known to the general public before the movies, but the movies seem to have been doing fairly well, right? Yeah, I, I think again, Marvel has a unique, uniquely successful take on this stuff. That they they're playing their minor characters for laughs for the most part, or for or definitely reveling in the obscurity and nerdiness of them. Like Guardians of the Galaxy was another example of this, where you know, to a comics fan, when that when that project was announced, it seemed like a very unlikely subject matter. You know, like very deep in the catalog for, for, to do a big budget movie on, but Marvel studios said, you know, we're not making a comic book. We're making a movie and we're going to make a big fun movie that people can go in and, and enjoy on that level. And if you like or care about the comics, well, here they are, but they make the movie first. I think, you know, Warner brothers has a different approach to how they do the DC stuff. And what you saw in, you know, not just the most recent, you know, Batman versus Superman movie, but even going back to stuff like Watchmen and those sorts of things is a very slavish desire to adapt faithfully what was in the comics and completely reproduce that that experience for the fan on the screen, even if it's less of a quality movie watching experience. And, uh, you know, I mean, that's my personal taste speaking to a certain degree, but I think the box office numbers um, you know, in terms of Marvel's sustained success on this stuff. And whereas whenever DC puts out a movie, it feels like a roll of the dice every time. Um, you know, the, the way that they approach this stuff is, is different. Right. And so the picture you paint in the book is kind of that the comic industry is, has been struggling and Hollywood has been this big sort of blood transfusion of cash that's kept it alive. And that was in 2011, right? Have things changed at all since then? Or would you say that's still kind of the situation as it stands? I think that, the, so when you're talking about Marvel and DC, which are both owned by, you know, Disney and Warner Brothers respectively, that they're much more integral to their entertainment world than the others. There's a middle strata of publishers that is like Image Comics and IDW 
Dark Horse, companies like that, that publish comics, like that's their business. Um, and they are, especially, especially Image, I would say, is really focusing all of their attention on making their comics really great for the people that want to read that. So that's stuff like Saga and The Walking Dead and, uh, you know, Bitch Planet and those sorts of things that are meant to stand alone as, as comic entertainment. And they're doing pretty well. And they're actually grabbing market share from fans who are getting a little bit burned out and pissed off at the continual game playing and universe churning that takes place in, in DC and Marvel. So, you know, there's, there's, there's two things happening at the same time, that there's, there's a greater focus on the quality of the comic product, especially at that level of the industry. And then there's also the greater integration of the comics in the, in the Hollywood world. But what you don't see as often is Hollywood coming in and picking out just random titles off the indie shelf and saying, let's make a movie out of that, which is more what they were doing 10 or 12 years ago. Right. And you talk about, too, how some of the advantages with these independent comics is that the characters can change more because, you know, they're not going to noticeably change Spider-Man, for example. Right. And also that the creators have more uh, rights over their work. Yeah, the intellectual property thing is, is an interesting one, because once, you know, I mean, uh, you know, DC and Marvel, their characters are corporate owned. And in some cases, they were expropriated from their original creators in some very sketchy and dubious circumstances. And modern creators take note of that. And, you know, I don't think that anybody wants to create the next blockbuster for Disney and not get compensated for that. So, you know, creators that go in there, they they take their money and they write their stories. But for telling their original stories or for creating new characters, they want to be in an environment where they can participate in that money. And that's where the uh, like like uh, Image is uh, almost entirely creator-owned. Almost all of the other um, companies that are out there have provisions for creators owning and participating in their works in a much more equitable way. Um, so, you know, people understand what the terms of the deal are now better than they used to. Um, so what that leads to is that the the mainstream, you know, DC and Marvel comics tend to be top-down managed by editorial committees and things like that, and they plot their storylines out years in advance and the artists and writers and the creative teams are essentially pieces of equipment for producing and executing on those centralized visions and for the real creator driven ferment and, and interesting ideas you have to look to the, the outskirts and so then also in the book you kind of paint this picture that uh comic book publishers know that they have to transition to digital but uh they're afraid if they do it in the wrong way it's going to destroy their whole business. And so Hollywood has kind of been keeping them on life support while they try to navigate this digital transition. So what's kind of the current, where does that stand currently? So when the book came out, that was kind of a conversation for the future. And right now in 2016, it's a conversation for the past. So what happened with digital comics is really interesting. First of all, as I had anticipated and discussed in the book, that there was really room in the market only for one major player in that area. And it turned out to be Comixology, which got acquired by Amazon uh, a year or two ago. And so they're the, they're the main clearinghouse for, um, for digital comics, unless you buy them directly from the publisher. The other thing that happened is that all of the fears about whether digital was going to cannibalize the business and destroy the retail chain um, turned out to be completely unfounded. In fact, the exact opposite happened. 
Um, when you think about what happened with digital music and digital video destroying music stores and destroying you know video rental places and you know tumbleweeds blowing through mm-hmm. Blockbuster now and, and stuff like that, actually the digital comics market expansion brought new customers into comic book stores and it forced comic book stores to change the way they approach those customers and change the way they merchandise because people would come in and they would be reading this stuff on their tablets. They wouldn't necessarily be buying the the comics, but they'd be buying the graphic novels because they like to have a nice edition on their shelf. They'd buy the art books, they'd buy toys, they'd buy merchandise. Um, they'd come for the community and comic stores, which are almost exclusively small businesses, are really good at serving their community. So, you know, people, as I said in the book, people come to the comic stores not to buy comics, but to buy the experience of buying comics. And that's what the stores give them. So that um, digital had that unanticipated consequence of, um, of making the other side of the business even stronger than it had been. And then the last thing is that, you know, at the time that the book came out, um, so right around 2012, is right at this moment when digital comics had really expanded the market significantly and they were getting double digit year over year, triple digit year over year increases in the number of readers, the amount of revenue. And this is what led Amazon to acquire Comixology when they did. What happened since then is a real stabilization. So we now see digital is at a roughly stable 25%, 20, 25% of market share. It's hard to tell because the numbers aren't that good coming out of the industry, but the the estimates of the you know people who should know this is that digital accounts for about 20-25%. It's not growing, it's not shrinking, that's what it is. I mean, because one of the things you talk about in the book is what effect is digital gonna have on the collector's market and people reselling their old comics? What what's happened with that? It created a two-tier market, basically. So there's the stuff that's genuinely scarce. Um, that's commanding higher prices than ever, especially if it's in really good condition. So you see comics and art going to auction and realizing just incredibly high prices. I think uh, um, the best-known copy of Action Comics number one, which was the first Superman, uh, I think gabbled at $2 million um, a, a few you know, months ago. And you know, so these blue-chip comics continue to go up. It's all of the bulk comics, and, and if, you know, you or some listeners are old enough to remember in the in the early '90s there was a real collector's boom, where you know comics that were out you know even a few months later were reselling for huge multiples of their cover price um, because of you know the perception that they were going to increase, and that's almost completely disappeared. Um, one of the things that the publishers try to do is they create scarcity by doing variant covers and and stuff like that, um, which still interests a segment of the market. And it's actually pretty important to the comic retailers to make sure that those collectors are serviced. But as a big trend, you know, nobody's going to retire on their comic collections these days. A lot of it depends, frankly, on, on buyers being interested enough to pay the big money to, to, um, for a particular issue. And if the current generation of buyers doesn't know, doesn't care, isn't interested in why a particular issue is important or why a particular artist was admired or whatever, then it doesn't matter what the price guide says. That you know that that issue has only the value that you can get for it on eBay. Yeah, I have a cousin who was a big comic book collector, and I can remember as a kid her telling me that her um, comic book she was going one day she was going to sell her comic book collection and be rich. And then it, it seems like it was only a couple of years later she said it wasn't really worth anything anymore. That 
people had all moved to trade the uh, the trade paperbacks. I think. Yeah, I mean, it depends on what you're collecting and why you're interested in them. But it used to be that it, you know, current comics would refer to older comics, and um, there were no reprints. So if you wanted the whole story, you had to like track down that particular issue, and that led to you know very high prices for stuff. And that's still the case. You know, when a movie comes out. And like the character Star-Lord, who was in the Guardians of the Galaxy movie, or Rocket Raccoon, these characters appeared in very obscure comics in the 1970s, that even if you were a collector, you probably don't have these issues sitting around. And so that drove a lot of curiosity. And, you know, those are now seven or $800 issues. But they're 40 years old now. So that, you know, I mean, they're, that's not, <laughs> that wasn't from last week. <laughs> I mean, one thing you talked about in the book was the collapse of the market for manga comics. And, you know, I spent a lot of time in bookstores, so I would always see the in the, the manga uh, shelf in the bookstore, there would just be like 25 kids just sitting there all reading manga comics. I was always kind of curious if they ever actually bought them or if they just sat there reading them. But it hadn't occurred to me really that I guess I haven't seen them so much anymore. But kind of what happened to, to manga? So manga was enormously popular and influential starting in around the late 90s. And one of the big things that was behind manga was, first of all, it was being merchandised like mad. So you'd get stuff like Pokemon and Sailor Moon and all of this stuff that was shown on TV. You know, so there was anime and there were collectible card games. And there was a whole bunch of stuff that was out there to, you know, that was like catnip for kids and collectors and, and everything. And so you would then go to the, you know, and, and you would find these uh, these editions that were starting to appear Mostly not at comic book stores, mostly in big bookstores, particularly Borders. So Borders was super important to the distribution of manga. They always had the best stock shelf. Their buyer was very um, up on what was going on in the industry. Um, the Japanese publishers were aware of that being their main outlet. And then Borders went bankrupt in 2011, I think. And so that shut the door to a lot of uh, the just the surface area that they had to distribute to. And the other thing is that, you know, the, the industry in Japan didn't generate hits for, for a while. Like they went through a six or seven year drought where none of the stuff that they were putting out was really catching on with North American audiences. That's reversed a little bit. So now you've got, you know, Attack on Titan, you've got One Punch Man, um, you've got a, an older property called Death Note that um, is sort of been bubbling along and growing in popularity. So there's there's more new and interesting stuff that's coming out now. And so now you're starting to see a resurgence in the market a little bit. Hmm. And I mean, I mentioned I had this perception that a lot of kids were reading the comics in the store and not buying them. Do you have any insight into that? Uh, now they're buying them. Um, yeah. <laughs> there, there's, there's a lot more kid-friendly stuff out there uh, than there used to be. So Adventure Time, of course, the animated show is is brilliant and, and weird and funny, and it's something that you know parents can watch with their kids, and, and everybody can get their own levels of enjoyment out of it. And the same thing goes with the Adventure Time comics. So they're they're a big hit. There's a series out from from Boom Studios called Lumberjanes that um, appeals mostly to young girls. It's a really like amazingly well done girl power adventure comic. Um, and I go into my comic store on Saturdays and it's a lot of little girls they're dragging their their dads <laughs> into the comic store to get you know Lumberjanes and My Little Pony and you know Adventure Time and those kind of books and also Star Wars 
um, the, the revival of Star Wars has brought a lot of fans. So if you're watching uh, Rebels or Clone Wars or something like that, there's comic book tie-ins to that that'll bring those those kids into the stores. And that's, uh, 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 as far as I can tell, I haven't seen the numbers, but it seems like a, like a healthier side of the business than it used to be. Right. And so and is the industry changing in ways to be more friendly to kids and women and other people like that? That's a complicated question. They are certainly making an effort to do that. And like the awards for the Eisner, sorry, the uh, Eisner nominations for 2016 just came out. And there are more women represented in that list than has ever been the case before. I would say that some of the most exciting talents in comics right now, people like Noel Stevenson, who did who does Lumberjanes and did a just a stunningly good graphic novel called Nimona. Um, she's 24 and she's, you know, a superstar. She's great. Fiona Staples, who draws um, Saga, um, you know, stuff like that. The um, uh, Unbeatable Squirrel Girl. Like, the, you know, like there, there's a lot of titles that are out there that are trying to get to that niche a little bit more. Um, so the publishers understand that the market is out there. I just went to a, um, an image comic event and there's a huge diversity of both creators and uh, protagonists in their in their comics now that represents a much broader, you know, demographic view than than used to be the case. But within the comics industry, it's still a struggle, especially for women and especially for people of color. It's you know it remains a a largely white male industry at the editorial decision making level. Right, because you mentioned in the book that your wife wasn't really into comics, but she got, just got curious and went to Comic-Con with you, and then she became a huge comic book fan. So you would think there just be, must be a huge, huge market of people like her who would, who would really get into it if, they, you know, if there was something to prompt them to do that. Ah, it's incredibly frustrating. We go to the comic store, and we'll have like a stack of five or six books there, and they'll all be for her. She's, <laughs> she's, she's reading, she, uh, you know, the, the number, number of titles that she's getting is a lot. And I think there's, you know, I think the, the generation of women that came of age in the nineties, you know, and they were not only reading comics, but they were watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Xena and reading Harry Potter and, you know, all of that stuff gave permission to, you know, succeeding generations of geek girls to really get into fandom, assert themselves, become vocal contributors into the fan culture. And, you know, it's, it's, um, I was doing some demographic research for, um, for client and, you know, at this point, fandom in terms of who's going to conventions is almost exactly 50, 50. So, you know, for years, the perception is, you know, this is an all male hobby and you go to comic cons and it's like, you know, just aisles and aisles filled with, you know, comic guy from the Simpsons. <laughs> and that is, that is so far from the reality. Now it's, it's, um, you know, uh, single women, married women, girls, families, older people, everybody's, everybody's into this stuff, at least at the level of, of going to conventions, enjoying the media, you know, as to who's buying the comics, it's probably still on the male side, but it's, uh, it's definitely a much different demographic than it was even, you know, uh, 10 years ago. Well, right, because I think a lot of people would have the perception that if you walk into a comic book store, it's going to be like the comic book guy from The Simpsons with this "you're not worthy to be in my store" attitude. Um, is is a lot of is there progress being made on that? Yeah, there is. I mean, there are some really great stores that are opening. There's a, a woman-owned comic store that just opened in Portland. 
um, that's, uh, you know, getting rave reviews from the Portland has a great comics community. So there's, there's a lot of people that sort of patronize that. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and successful stores understand they, they can't be, you know, like the, the cave like places. Ironically, the store that I go to is called the comics dungeon, but they, (laughs) but that, that name dates from an earlier era and the store itself is actually open and light. And, and, uh, they have, uh, many of the people that work there are women who know more about this stuff than I ever will. So, you know, I think the the retail environment is changing. There are still, you can still find comic book guy if you look for him. He's, uh, he's not, he's not too far from the surface, but uh, it's definitely not the exclusive image of the industry anymore. Hmm. So how, how about if there were young people who are interested in making their own comics? What is sort of the the business situation for people like that trying to break into the industry right now? I mean, social media and web comics have really revolutionized that. Uh, the Tumblr platform is a place where an awful lot of aspiring uh, web comic creators are posting their work. I think Noel Stevenson was doing her stuff on Tumblr and on social media, and then eventually through sort of more established web comic channels um, before she got broke into the industry. Um, Deviant art and places like that is, you know, a big social network for, um, for amateur artists and cartoonists. Um, there's a, you know, lots of strata of publishers, Comixology, the, the digital comics publisher has a program called submit where you can put your story. Um, you know, as long as it meets certain minimum professional standards, um, you could put your story right up onto their website, so it's on the, it's in the same storefront and marketplace as DC and Marvel and The Walking Dead and everything. So you're getting your titles in front of that audience. Um, there's a lot of cool stuff coming from elsewhere in the world. So there's stuff from you know Brazil and Africa and, and um, India that we're getting digitally that we wouldn't get the physical copies necessarily. Um, stuff that you wouldn't see on the shelves. But if it's out there if you want to look for it. So it's really, you know, from the bottom up side of the industry, there's lots more opportunities for artists to reach an audience. Um, but, you know, as with everything in this sort of new media world, it's, you know, it's less certain. And you really have to, you know, get your Kickstarter going and get your, you know, 20,000 Twitter followers mobilized and all that stuff. So it's, it's, it, it the opportunities are there. It's just the ways that you have to work to get to that is different. Yeah. I mean, in the book, you mentioned this comic book, I think it was called Supernatural Law, uh, that I thought was interesting because it's it's never been huge, but the people have been doing it for 25 years, I think, and it's sold steadily and they have other jobs and things. But you can also have that kind of a career in comics where it's it's not big, but it's big enough to make you happy. Well, that's the great thing about the fandom is that, you know, so, you know, that really... Um, anybody that's a creator, if you've done something that anybody has seen, somebody will remember it somewhere. I mean, you know, now I've walked the floor of comic convention. I'm by no means like anybody in the industry or anything like that. But there are people who have read Comic-Con in the business of pop culture. They've seen me on panels and stuff like that. And it, and so, you know, it's like, a, it's like the elephant's memory. It's like nobody ever forgets any of this stuff. So especially the creators that broke in and thank you for mentioning Supernatural Law because I love that book and I love the people that do it. Uh, Batten Lash is the, the creator of that. 
and you know they they moved over to um to web comics a while ago and then they've been very successful doing kickstarters so they'll publish the web comics and then they'll do a kickstarter to bring the book out and then they'll sell the book at conventions and that's become their business model and it's different from you know packaging a comic book and getting a publisher to do it and then getting it in the distribution catalog and getting it into the stores and things like that and if they had their druthers, it would probably they'd probably be better off a little bit under the old system, but they've made the new system work for them. I mean, so when people are buying comics off of Comicsology, are the prices a lot lower than print stuff? Because I feel like a reason I never got into comic books as much as I might have is just because they were so expensive. I just didn't want to sink that much money into the hobby. No, the new stuff is just as expensive as uh, so. If you're buying the current issue, it's going to be three ninety nine or four ninety nine or whatever, whatever they're charging for it. Um, whether you buy it digitally or print, because you can't, the publishers are willing to put this stuff out there at the same time, but they're not going to undercut their their um, retail chain to that extent. And the other thing is that the uh, that a lot of retailers give their box customers, you know, if you if you go to the store regularly, you'll get a discount of ten or fifteen percent off the cover price. Um, so they want to they want to keep that network alive. They don't they don't want digital to completely dominate but what you're starting to see is subscription plans now through uh digital comics mostly for older stuff mostly for stuff that's six months or older so marvel has a really good program called marvel unlimited which has you know tens of thousands of back issues that, that are available and i think it's like 9.99 a month or it's you know some you know netflix ish price point for all the comics that you read as long as you don't care that you're not getting the, the current one um, there's a startup I know called Comic Blitz that's doing that model for other other publishers. Um, Archie does subscription model, so you know there's a way to do it as a as a sort of monthly fixed cost. But it's um, un- unfortunately, it, you know, paying four bucks for a for you know a 32 page download that you're going to read in you know 15 or 20 minutes, not great value for money. Um, you also talked in the book about Scott McCloud had this idea for micropayments. And do you think that's ever going to catch on? I don't know. I mean, I don't know what the state of the micropayments uh, infrastructure is right now. I think it's more possible now than it was in 2000, which is when he suggested it. Um, you know, I mean, it was a case of, I think, being, you know, ahead of his time and, and a little bit too optimistic about, about where the technology was going. And it's possible that the um, that by the time they do get that in a condition where it'll support conceptually what he was trying to do, that the market will have moved on and there'll be other ways to pay for and consume comics that don't involve that. Because, I mean, that's it's sort of frustrating, like doing a podcast like this, where you just think, oh, if just people paid 10 cents per download or something, that would be a really, really good income. But there's just no way to, no good way to do that. It doesn't seem like it at the moment, but uh, in my other line of work, which is doing sort of more general futurist, I have a an eye on mobile payments and digital currency, and that sooner or later, I think it's going to be possible to do that. And I think it's more likely to happen with other media types like podcasts and um, YouTube videos and, and stuff like that than it is for uh, for comics. Yeah. I hope it happens for podcasts. That would be good. <laughs>
Um, all right. So sort of toward the end of the book, you talk about the future of comics and you speculate about whether we've reached what you call peak geek. Uh, do you think we've reached peak geek yet? I think we're definitely at full saturation. I mean, it's hard to imagine comics and superheroes having a bigger profile in popular culture than they have today. I mean, you've got gigantic comic conventions happening every weekend of the year in three or four places around North America. You've got the top box office movies, you know, in, in the world based on these properties. Um, you've got comic artists and comics and sequential art as an art form getting unprecedented respect in academia, in culture, in everywhere you look. So whether that saturation just kind of sinks in and fades into the background and that just becomes the new normal or whether we're due for a correction of some sort, um, you know, I, I, it seems to me likely that, that um, you know, we're going to exhaust people's interests and exhaust people's money I mean, eventually everybody that wants a picture with William Shatner is going to have one, <laughs> you know, and then, and, you know, but in the meantime, you know, it's like all these people going to comic conventions and paying, you know, 75 or a hundred bucks for a weekend to go, you know, for the privilege of going in and spending more money. Um, one of the things that happened with the book, I wrote a piece about this um, uh, a month or two ago for the, uh, for the industry publication, ICB2, is that all four of the scenarios that I predicted, you know, in the back of the book, in terms of growth and shrinkage and, you know, increased, you know, bottom up and top down and all of that stuff, all of them are coming true at the same time in their own way. It just depends on where you look. So there's a huge amount of ferment of, of you know, bottom up creator driven activity. Those books are doing better than ever. Um, at the same time, the art form of comics has retrenched and separated itself at the independent small press level from the rest of the industry to a much greater extent. So you can go to a small press show, um, you know, small press expo or, um, you know, like a Brooklyn comic fest or something like that. And the, the work that you'll see displayed there has nothing to do with the mainstream comics industry whatsoever. So you've got that scenario happening in that niche of the market. You've got comics expanding bigger than ever across all media and, and sort of galloping from screen to screen to stage plays and amusement park rides and everything, which is the, the quadrant where I talked about like the expanding multiverse. And at the same time, you've got within the comic book industry, this real ongoing crisis of how do we reboot the universe? How do we keep these, these old characters relevant? If you look at what DC is doing, they're starting to reboot their universe for yet another time. Um, you know, they're, they're really having trouble connecting either with new fans or with their old fans with the catalog of stuff that they've got and the stable of creators that they've got. So it's, um, you know, just depending on where you put your attention, all of that stuff is happening at once. So is the, you know, are the signs pointing toward the peak geek recoil? Um, you know, unfortunately, my crystal ball is not that, <laughs> it's not, not that accurate. Well, I mean, when you talk about peak geek, I sort of dream of a world in which, you know, you just go to school and they teach you how to draw superhero comics and art class and you read science fiction in English class and they teach you how to make video games and stuff like that. 
I mean, do you see there? Do you see any hope for a future where geek stuff becomes the like really literally the mainstream of culture, or do you think it's inevitable that it's gonna be like westerns or something and it's gonna recede culturally? Oh no, I think that the that the art form of comics and the medium of comics, and especially the way that it's evolving in the digital world and in transmedia and all of that stuff, is more relevant in the way that you're talking about than ever, and will continue to be so. Um, there was a great uh, uh, I guess, graphic novel that came out last year called Unflattened by a guy named Nick Susanis. It was actually his PhD dissertation for Columbia School of Education, talking about the value of visual education in the educational curriculum that was done itself as a graphic novel. It's really a tour de force, um, but it sort of shows the way forward about what that would look like with all of this stuff sort of baked into an interdisciplinary curriculum. I mean, the problem, as always with education, is that the Education is kind of a lagging industry in many ways. And so stuff that seems obvious and innovative, you know, elsewhere in the economy takes a much longer time to sink in in academia. So, you know, hopefully we'll get there. But in terms of the business side, whether Hollywood is going to eventually say, you know what, these superhero movies are diminishing returns. We've made our money. Let's move on to some other genre and get this stuff off the screens, get this stuff off of television for a while. And the impact that that would have on the business side of this in terms of the conventions, the retail stores, comic book sales, the creative community, all of that, that's a different matter. And I think that that seems inevitable. None of these, no pop culture trend lasts forever. Right. I could definitely see superheroes as superheroes, you know, uh, superpowered characters in brightly colored costumes that that could that people could just kind of get burned on out on that after a while. But it just seems like geek culture, if you more broadly in terms of fantasy and science fiction and comic books and video games, all that kind of stuff. It seems like it's so varied. It's hard for me to imagine all those things declining in popularity. No, together. I think I. No, I mean, I think that we've come to the point where we understand we live in a visual culture, that comics are a visual medium and that they're tied in and that the, the way that they attract and motivate the fan base is really important to in a whole bunch of different ways, whether it's social or economic. So, yeah, I'm totally with you on that. Um, you know, again, it's just, you know, as a pop culture phenomenon, is it uh, uh, one of the things that happened that drove comics into the mainstream in the early 2000s was the a bunch of up and coming thought leaders in the elite community kind of came out of the closet as comic fans. And, you know, people like Tommy Hesey Coates, who's now writing Black Panther for Marvel, and Ezra Klein, and, uh, you know, uh, Spencer Ackerman, you know, people like that, like these sort of um, influential bloggers, journalists, you know, sort of cultural critics, thought leaders. Uh, Douglas Wolk is another guy. Um, Michael Chabon with his uh, Cavalier and Clay book, you know, is a serious literary author who wrote this Pulitzer Prize winning bestseller about the early days of the comics industry. So there was a lot of um, air cover from the influential voices in culture saying, hey, this stuff is actually more interesting than meets the eye. And I read comics in the 70s and all of these sort of wonky, geeky storylines really had something going for them that you didn't notice. What we're seeing now is a lot of these same people or the same kinds of people are now pushing back from the table saying, you know what, enough with the superhero movies. This stuff was great for a while, but now it's kind of stupid. It's repetitive. It's loud. It's boring. It's uncreative. It's corporate. 
And so the critique of what's going on in the pop culture industry has gone from being sort of generally approved of and cheered on by people that were fans to being not quite as cool and more, oh, everybody's into this stuff now, time for us to find the next thing. So that's an early indicator to me that that the cultural dialogue is changing a little bit. Yeah. I mean, one thing interesting in the book I thought was you talk about how the Comic-Con audience was as enthusiastic as they could possibly be about Scott Pilgrim, and then it didn't perform well at the box office. So, so obviously, we're still not at the point where the geek audience alone can make a film a success. Nor can they make a film a failure. I mean, if you look at the reaction to Batman versus Superman among the fan community, fans hate that movie and they hate superman man of steel too that that was that both of those were very controversial interpretations of the character and yet the film made you know a staggering amount at the box office so the role of the you know the influencers in the fan community which was really prized by marketers and by entertainment companies and studios at comic-con you know in the early 2000s is now i think way less important than what the mass audience thinks. I mean that that and I think one of the one of the things you're going to see is that entertainment companies are going to start pulling back from the big participation at San Diego Comic-Con. Um because it's just not that important to them anymore. They've already got that audience or they don't, but they're not going to win them over by being at Comic-Con the way they would before. They have a marketing budget and they're going to spend that marketing budget getting the few unconvinced people into the box office and into the movie theaters. Yeah. I mean, in the book, you talk for, for a couple of pages about the G4 network that kind of covered geeky news on, on television. And I think after the book was published, G4 actually shut down. Do you have any take on why that happened? I, I think that the it's part of the general like de-siloification that was happening in cable TV. So a lot of these niche networks that started out with very specific mission around, you know, learning channel and, you know, home and garden and all of that stuff, you know, all started sort of converging on general interest programming. And I think G4, you know, became Esquire and they were trying to target a, a larger niche and a more general interest niche. So that was, that had more to do with the economics of the cable industry, I think. But an interesting thing happened recently, and that's that um, Comic-Con International, the group that puts on San Diego Comic-Con and WonderCon, went into a business partnership with Lionsgate to do a an over-the-top, so sort of streaming network. I think it's going to be on iTunes and Hulu and, and, and stuff like that, um, with the same kind of programming. And they hired a lot of the same people that were working at G4. So I think they're going to restart that model of doing the Geek TV Thing, but they're going to do it on a different platform and a different distribution strategy where they can hone in on that audience um, a little bit better than they were able to do just through, you know, mass distributed, uh, you know, standard cable. Right. Because the general consensus online seemed to be that G4, I guess, like you're saying, they tried to appeal too broadly and then the, they lost their <laughs> they lost their hardcore fan base, sort of like the comic book industry, I guess, is always afraid is going to happen. But could, oh, could, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say with G4, I mean, let's be honest, it's, they had a they had their superstar, it was Olivia Munn, and she moved on to other stuff. And, um, you know, it was hard to replace her as a, you know, uh, central focus of that enterprise, I think. Yeah. 
Okay, so see, yeah, so we've mentioned that since this book came out, there have been tons of developments. And I actually heard you say in an interview that you're planning a new edition of Comic-Con in the business of pop culture. I'm looking into it. I'm trying to figure out what's the best way to do that. I don't want to do another traditionally published book. Um, I may do it as a, you know, as a series of chapters that people subscribe to or, um, you know, I'm sort of looking into other models with that. I'm teaching right now at the University of Washington. I've been te- for the last few years, I've been teaching this class on comics as communication platform. Um, and that's um, the interactions that I've had with students and the kind of projects that that's inspired with the students is sort of pushing me in a, in a new direction in terms of how I'm thinking about this. So relative to the other thing that we were talking about, you know, I'm much more excited by its potential in education and storytelling as a discipline and a sort of wider view than than necessarily what's going on in the industry today. I think the future of the of graphic storytelling as a medium remains, you know, untold in a systematic way. And I think that would be kind of interesting. Yeah. And Minecraft. All teaching in the future <laughs> will be done with Minecraft. Indeed. <laughs> All right, so I think we're going to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Rob Salkowitz about his book, Comic-Con and the Business of Pop Culture. So Rob, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, My pleasure. If people want to follow my uh, ongoing activities, you can follow me on Twitter at Rob Salk. And then I also write a regular column at uh, Forbes and ICB2. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Rob Salkowitz for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Pon Far Out, who writes, Thank you for being a nerdy friend on my late night. So big thanks again to Pon Far Out for that great review. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that via PayPal over at geekskyshow.com slash crowdfunding. So a big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.